in this world, we are continually bombarded with false truths. They're all around us. We hear them all the time. Sometimes we don't even know it when we're being lied to, but we're bombarded. They're all around us. As Christians, we're taught from Scripture that the world hates us because it first hated Him. Our Lord, He Himself explains that to us in Scripture. We look forward to a day when the Lord returns, and and we are with Him. A glorious day that will be. But think of it. If, If we were denied the truth of Christ's return, and in some way we're convinced, convincingly told that He will not be returning, certainly not returning to judge the world in its sinfulness and bringing justice If that were the case, brothers and sisters, then we would be hearing the same lies that Peter's original hearers, original readers, were being subjected to. They were being exposed to this. What a discouraging word it would be. Discouraging to our practice in godliness and self-control. Discouraging to or desire to have love for our neighbor. If we did not believe the Lord would be coming in in righteousness to judge the world for its sin, frankly, the church would be indistinguishable apart from the rest of the world in a very little time if the justice of God was never to be expected. In our text today, in the last verses in chapter 1 of Second Peter, the apostle is addressing the problem that is being stirred up by the false teachers. In a careful reading of this text, I believe if you go in and you observe this text carefully, it's going to reveal three replies. Three replies that Peter gives to the objections that are put up by these heretics. These objections that they put up against the apostles and their preaching of Christ's imminent and powerful return. So turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we are in verses 16 through 21 this morning. Let's read what he had to say about the truth of Christ confirmed. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." 
Amen. In this passage, Peter attests to the veracity of what he and the apostles have been teaching and preaching concerning Christ's return. As credible eyewitnesses regarding his prophesied kingship, as to the trustworthiness of biblical prophecy and the true source of Scripture itself. These are his three replies to their false objections to the apostles' preaching. Now, Christians can completely rely upon the truth of Scripture to be just what it claims to be, the very true revelation of the Word of God. And there are no second bests to consider when it comes to a source for knowing what is true about God in His revealed will for all mankind. There are no second bests. The question that I have put to this text text is this. How do we have the truth about Christ? How do we have that truth, His mission, and his return, how do we have that confirmed for us to truly believe? How is it confirmed? I have three points that I wish to expound upon about how that is done. First, we have truth of Christ confirmed in apostolic eyewitness. We see that in verses 16 through 18. Number two, we have truth of Christ confirmed in the prophecy of Scripture, the Word of God itself. We see that being expounded upon in verse 19. And then lastly, number three, we have the truth of Christ confirmed by the source of Holy Scripture. And that is, brothers and sisters, in verses 20 and 21. So with that, our first point this morning We have truth of Christ confirmed in apostolic eyewitness. Now, just after Peter has promised in verse 15 to make his teachings about Christ available after his death, we see Peter going right into it. He goes right into it to start to deal with these false teachers, really these teachers that are upsetting the faith of many. Now, his initial defense that he takes here, his first reply to scoffers was that we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's his first defense. Now, clearly here, the we that he's referring to points to those who were eyewitnesses of what is described in verse 17, the the transfiguration. We'll get to that. It is for certain, it is Peter, James, and John who were those eyewitnesses. But considering who was teaching this event portrayed in Scripture, it included the whole party of the apostles, all of them, the apostles in general. So you could see the we's referring to the the apostolic preaching. Now, despite all of them, all of the apostles not being there, no doubt, those three men 
told the others, the, the apostles and, and other close disciples, of their vision on the holy mountain after Christ's resurrection. In Matthew 17, Christ tells them as they come down the mountain, don't go tell them what you saw here in this vision right away, not until he is risen from the dead, not until after Christ's resurrection. For certain, they told them this, and that's what they're preaching. That's what's being scoffed at here by these false teachers. Commentator Richard Bauckham comments on the objection of these false teachers. He says, quote, there is really no need to ask what kind of myths that the text here is referring to. Because, frankly, it refers to no myths at all except the apostolic preaching, which the false teachers slandered by calling it myths. Those were fighting words. Let's call it myths. There is therefore really no difficulty in supposing that it was the Christian eschatological teaching, that end-time teaching about Christ's return, which the false teachers were rejecting as myths. And frankly, by context that we read later on in this letter, we come to understand that more clearly. To the false teachers, the eschatological teaching of the apostles was to be held as no prophecy that was inspired by God. In fact, it was the fabrication of merely human cleverness with some unworthy motive wrapped up in it. That's what they were being accused of. That's what we're supposing they were accused of. The Epicureans. The Epicureans, they held that the Greek stories of punishment in the afterlife as were really instruments of moral control, you know, to keep men in fear. And the false teachers that Peter was combating here in his letter, they, have been, they may have been saying something very similar to the Christian belief in future judgment. This scoffing, it came as a result of the, the apostles' careful and faithful preaching. That was what was made known, as verse 16 notes, talks about, especially the power and coming of Jesus Christ, especially that. You know, the expectation of the parousia, the, uh, the, the appearing, that's what that word means, the appearing. And, and then every time you see that in the New Testament, it's referring to Christ's return, the appearing. If that is what the false teachers were, were claiming, that the apostles were, were preaching myths, it was a stinging insult. No self-respected teacher would have put up with being called someone who's a purveyor of myths in those days, even more so than we would take offense at it today. Those who peddled myths or were very much looked down upon. In light of the accusation of, of, of preaching myths, thus frankly insulting Old Testament prophecy, Peter attests to the great apostolic eyewitness of the transfiguration. Now, very providentially, 
Peter's eyewitness testimony is confirmed by two more witnesses. It wasn't just him who saw this and talks about it. It was confirmed by James and John as well. As Bauckham explains in his commentary, the, the transfiguration is the basis for this parousia expectation, this second coming of Christ, because it is God's appointment of Jesus to a role which he has not yet exercised, but will exercise when he comes in glory. Remember, remember our Lord humbled himself in his first advent. He had not exercised what was revealed to them on this vision on the mountain. Now, we should observe how Jesus receives honor and glory from God. The voice they heard was born to Jesus by the majestic glory. God himself. By God himself. In Luke's account, in his account of the transfiguration, that heavenly voice referred to Jesus as my son, my chosen one. The accounts of the transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and um, and here in Second Peter, say, my beloved son. They don't say my chosen one. Now, mind you, that's not a contradiction in Scripture. It is not. It is a retelling of the same account using a different Greek word for describing God the Father's distinction of Jesus as the Christ, as God's beloved, His chosen one. And Jesus is indeed chosen by God as his vicegerent, his, his captain of the armies of heaven. Christ will indeed come in power when he returns. There will be no mistaking it. Scripture tells us this. We won't go, oh, is that Christ returning? No, you're going to know it. If you're there to observe it, you'll know it. If you're not in the entourage... Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, he explains that Jesus Christ's return will be a glorious and triumphant coming. Like his first coming, his first advent, it will certainly be personal, it'll be physical and visible. It will also be very different than his first coming. For Jesus will not return in the body of his humiliation, but in a glorified body and in royal apparel. In his return, as Hebrews 9, verse 28 predicts, he will not come to deal with sin in the way that he dealt with sin in his first advent, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. It will be triumphant. That longing that we have to see that and be totally and ultimately finally saved The clouds of heaven will be his chariot. The angels will be his bodyguard. The archangels will be his herald. The saints of God, his glorious attendants. He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, triumphant over all the forces of evil, having put all his enemies under his feet. That will be our Lord's coming. That is what is being attacked, as 
being a, a myth. And Peter wants his readers to understand clearly these enemies include these false teachers who deny his return. And why are they doing that? Well, we'll get more details in the letter, but they're doing it so they can wallow in their fleshly indulgences. Wallow in them. Not just in a way that escapes judgment, but even to a point of teaching that a freedom is given them to do this in Christ. So just enjoy it. Again, upsetting the faith of many. So you can hopefully see how important it is to Peter that his readers accept what the Scriptures say regarding Christ. All things regarding Christ. And to accept the eyewitness account of the apostles regarding His visibly and audibly confirmed majesty from that voice that was born on high from heaven. Their eyewitness account it squarely refutes the scoffer's charge of them concocting myths. They were only preaching the truth of what Scripture has prophesied. They were only preaching the truth. There will be a day, beloved, there will be a day, and perhaps today is not that day, but there will soon be a day when we will no longer walk with God in faith. But we will walk with God by sight. Yea, we will behold His face. The face of God that no man can see and live. We are right to long for that day. Walking by faith in a strong way requires, again, these qualities that Peter has already enumerated in chapter 1. And it's hard. It is hard. These qualities don't come natural to man in his present condition. And again, as, although these qualities are possessed in some measure by each and every Christian, still, walking by faith is hard. It is the hard, narrow path beset with trials that the Christian pilgrim walks this side of heaven. But we must embrace the hard. For it is that which makes us a better person. What I mean by that is a more faithful and trusting disciple. That is, as long as it's taken and embraced in the power of Christ as we boast in our own weakness. Believing in Christ's return to finally and ultimately save His people and judge the world, that encourages our faithful walk in this life. This teaching is so very critical. And I think it's a natural thing to ask as readers here to be curious about examples of prophecies of the promised Christ in his eschatological role as the judge of all things. And I, obviously there's many in Scripture, but I'll give you a couple of them now. One of them is found in Psalm, verse, in Psalm 7, verses 6 and 9. And here God is speaking to his enemies. 
And he says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 7 is understood as an enthronement psalm. It speaks to his kingly role. Another recorded prophecy in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 42, in verse 1 of that chapter, which is part of the servant songs of Isaiah, God is written here saying this. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Jews understood these passages to be messianic prophecies. They indicate the future of Christ's person and his mission as the one who is both king, who rules, and the servant who suffers and dies for the sins of his people. It's just prophecy, not made up stuff that was being preached and revealed to them as things have become more clear. Certainly, things have become more clear with Christ's first advent and his life and sufferings and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. These prophecies being fulfilled much more clear now. Jesus is the prophesied Christ who has been appointed king and redeemer who will surely come in his royal parousia and his royal second coming. Now his, this testimony that Peter gives, wouldn't you agree that this is the type of testimony that one should expect from a credible witness if they're giving you an eyewitness account of something? something that was seen and heard, and not only that, verified by other witnesses. Well, what do you call that? We see it all the time in history. Not even often that verified. However, it is not simply what the apostles witness that matters. It is the appeal to the divine source of the declaration, that voice born on high. There is no reason, therefore, for Peter's audience and for us now to believe false teachers who deny or even weaken in some way the hope of the glorious future of the return of Jesus Christ. Those heretics, those scoffers, they weren't there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' second coming majesty. Honor and glory was bestowed upon him by God. Peter, James, and John, they, they they saw Moses and Elijah there affirming Christ, the law and the prophets. Symbolized there. 
And above all, again, they heard God Himself honor His Son. Ultimately, here, Peter, his appeal for his reader's faith in Christ's return, again, is what was already prophesied. And so, once more time, asking the the same question that I put to the text earlier. How do we have the truth about Christ, His mission and His return? How do we have that confirmed to us to to truly believe it? The second way that it is confirmed is point number two. We have truth of Christ confirmed in the prophecy of Scripture, in the Word of God. Verse 19, again, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This appeal of Peter's in verse 19, this is his reply to the scoffer's objection that seeks really to devalue Old Testament prophecy. To, to devalue scripture, scripture as a whole, really. For really, if Scripture cannot be trusted in one area, regarding, for example, Christ's return as King, coming to judge the world, then why should it be trusted in all matters regarding faith and practice? Again, can you see how important it is to, to protect the truth and the teaching of Scripture here? This verse offers a second ground of assurance. In verse 16, we saw we. Now, in verse 19, we see that again, but now it's referring to all believers, not just the apostles. All Christians have the prophetic word of God. We all have it. The prophetic word here primarily refers to the Old Testament, but specifically to those prophecies concerning Christ. That is the matter being discussed, in fact. As one scholar has commented, he said, quote, the numerous prophecies concerning the Messiah already fulfilled give faith a more firm basis of assurance that the predictions concerning His, glor- his coming glory will also be fulfilled. This is true, then this is also true, is what he's saying. The transfiguration, the witnessing of it, the preaching of it is in harmony with that assurance. It's a blessing to us. You know, Peter, he met the scoffing with his eyewitness testimony. And now he justifies that his and the other apostles' teachings really have been solidly based upon Old Testament prophecy. Again, not a myth. So what does Peter do here? What's he doing? Well, he, what he's trying to do here is he wants to show the great value of Scripture and its trustworthy claims to his readers. These aren't silly myths. You know, as Bauckham put it, the lamp of prophecy lights up the darkness of this present world's hopeless ignore, ignorance with a bright beam of hope. When I say Bauckham, I, in this church, I got to be more specific. Richard Bauckham, okay? 
This prophecy sheds light into the darkness, bringing this beam of hope there. You know, only a fool, only a fool, either ignorant or just really plain hateful, would seek to diminish heavenly hope. Peter, he writes, he says, the, the prophetic word is, is more fully confirmed. The plain and ordinary reading of the text would suggest that because of the eyewitness account of the transfiguration and what it represented, the prophecy written in the Old Testament is even more fully confirmed regarding Jesus' return. Not that it's more right now to believe it, but you could say it's easier to believe because of the holy vision on the Mount of Transfiguration. Beloved, this vision recorded in Scripture is a mercy of God. He has granted His church to bolster our faith. We should be thankful for it. Pastorally, Peter, what's he doing? He's urging his readers. He's urging them to pay attention to what has been prophesied in Scripture, to turn their minds to the prophetic word, to encourage faith and right, proper belief. It's truly deserving of all of our energies. Scripture admonishes us to pay attention. He says it right here in this passage. Pay attention. So we should be students, and we should be prayerful about this. In verse 19, these prophecies are likened to as a lamp shining in a dark place. What's the purpose of a lamp but to dispel darkness with its light? To reveal what is hidden in the dark places. You know, hidden in this context by the devil as the great enemy who blinds the eyes of the world. Hidden by man's own selfish desire to do what's right in his own eyes. Hidden by man's ignorance, sometimes even willful ignorance. Take heart, friends. God is immeasurably greater than each of these obstacles with the devil's doing and the world itself. Immeasurably greater in the favor which he chooses to bless someone with and loving them and saving them. That's available to anyone at any time, under any circumstance, to those who repent and believe. Believe upon Christ. So pray, dear friends, you who doubt that God would send His Holy Spirit to, to turn your heart from stone and have eyes that see and a heart that believes on Christ. When you're in a really dark place, have you noticed that it really doesn't, when it's pitch dark, have you noticed that it doesn't really take much light to reveal that which is being hidden? Not when it's pitch dark. 
You know, some people, I've noticed, have small keychain flashlights. I'm, I'm, I'm betting a dollar Gerald has one on his keychain. Um, that normally, you know, in a lighted room like this, would be kind of worthless because they're so small. You know, thinking, you know, how could that even be helpful, this little flashlight? Granted, in the dark, you can't see a mile down the road with one of these tiny flashlights. But you can see just enough to find a doorknob. You know, one of the memories, it's really an odd memory that sticks with me. When Emily and I went to Ukraine to get Alice, our daughter, is that, you know, we stayed in an apartment building, and it felt like it was a toss back to what Americans would envision existed for people during those dreary communist era run days. You know, it was dilapidated, if you could say that, all right? Now, our apartment was on like the third or fourth floor. The stairwell was, it was so dark. It was so dark. You could hardly see even your hand in front of your face. And the door to our apartment, it seemed like it had 10, 10 locks on it. I guess that was its security. There's so many locks on that door. And if it weren't for the tiny pocket flashlight that I had at that time, it would have taken three times as long to find the right key for each one of those locks. I don't know why that sticks with me, but it does. It doesn't take much light to show what's hidden. A dear friend, pray to God in heaven that he would open your eyes to see the light of truth about what Scripture claims regarding Jesus Christ. For many who have been found by Christ, we had a very humble beginning to our faith. Just enough light exposing Christ had been revealed to us to believe and repent by God's Spirit to, to believe. A good place to go for a seeker of truth to begin reading in the Bible is in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. It's a great place to start if you're wanting to learn about this. Start there. One of John's purposes is specifically to reveal Christ in this way. For now, we Christians, we depend upon that lamp shining on the truth of Scripture to instruct us, to encourage us in our faith and practice. But that time will come to an end. It will come to an end for us and all the world. There will be no going back for a second chance. This future is what presses so mightily upon Peter's thoughts and urging his readers to accept the prophecy of Scripture that Jesus will return as king and will judge the world. The lamp shining in a dark place will exist until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, in the hearts of believers. That day, that day to which Peter refers to is a symbol for the eschatological age, that end time age, which will dawn at Christ's second coming. 
The word day in our text probably is a symbol for the eschatological age as a whole. Okay? The dawning of it. Which is daylight in contrast to the darkness of the present time. You know, prophecy's function of illuminating the darkness of ignorance, it's going to be overthrown. It's going to be superseded when that full light of of an eschatological revelation will, will be flooding the hearts of God's people. So clear it will be. The rising of the morning star that we read here, it, it's a symbol for the return of Christ. Inaugurating, introducing the end of the world as we know it, introducing the dawning day. It, it's an end an ending that will be accompanied with fire and destruction, making way for a new heaven and a new earth for the saints of of Christ. The dawning of that day. And praise God, it is Christ who saves us. Many commentators agree that this reference to the morning star rising, Peter's writing here, that it's an illusion to what's written in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. I'll read it for you. It says, I see him. I see him, but now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. The world... This verse was interpreted by the Jews as a reference to the coming Messiah. Again, prophesied, not a silly myth. There's even prophecy given by Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He prophesied in a similar way in Luke 1, verse 78, when he referred to the tender mercy of God, granting that the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Certainly the prophetic word, just like the apostolic witness of the transfiguration, stands over against the false teaching of the heretics. Beloved, if we let the truth that Scripture prophesies about Jesus' return, if we let that arise in our hearts like a morning star, it shall give us an inner assurance That the day of the Lord is indeed coming. Pondering that truth of Christ's return, it affects the way you live today. It's vitally important. The argument that goes that if that should be believed, then we should let all truth regarding Christ our Lord that's attested to in Scripture, that it should emanate from our hearts. We should believe it all. It should come out of our hearts, out of our minds, out of our mouths, our hands and what we're doing. So rejoice in your Lord. Rejoice in Him, in the Lamb who was slain but is standing. He will come again in power 
we can and should believe what God has said in his written word. All of it. In accordance with the meaning intended by the authors. Now we trust it. Not because of the wonderful and hopeful things that it promises and declares, but we trust it because of the veracity of the source of the words written. That's why we trust it. We know where it's coming from. And so for one last time, asking again that same question put to our text, how do we have truth about Christ, His mission and His return? How do we have that confirmed for us to truly believe? Well, in point three, we have truth of Christ confirmed by the source of Holy Scripture. Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They must understand the true source of biblical prophecy. All of Scripture and its meaning, both of that, that comes from the Holy Spirit, from God Himself. And here Peter gives yet another reply to the scoffers their rejection of the preaching of Christ. They were rejecting the authority of the Old Testament prophecy by denying its divine source. They claimed that the prophecies in Scripture, they were product, that they were products of the human mind, that they weren't God-given, and that the contemporary message of the apostles was just some made-up stuff. And so in reply, Peter writes here in these verses, he denies this view. He reasserts the divine origin of Old Testament prophecy. No prophecy in the Old Testament originated from human initiative or imagination. God used men, holy men, but it was on the initiative of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God inspired not only the prophets' dreams and visions, but also the interpretations of these. So that when they spoke the prophecies recorded in Scripture, they were simply spokesmen for God Himself, His mouthpiece. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I have found it to be a common occurrence among those who speak, frankly, on the world's behalf in the power of this present darkness, that they will accuse others of the very wickedness that they themselves are doing. Or they themselves condone. They just try to be the first one to come out of the gate with the accusations. You know, louder and louder, and frankly, more and more in an uncivil way. They accuse the innocent of the unholy things that they themselves not only do, but of the things that really begin to characterize them. Liars. You know, reveling in, in perversions and, and the like. They are noisy gongs. They are gongs. They are clanging cymbals. They accuse the apostles of the teaching myths, yet they themselves were the ones that were doing the teaching of myths, teaching heresy. They were speaking against the Christ of God. Do you think God will forget that? You know, Peter talks about that later on in this letter. 
God is faithful to remember the justice that he will bring. These false teachers that Peter's referring to, they were much like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Uh, The teachers that Peter condemns are filled with that same spirit of those prophets. They accused the apostles of teaching myths, but they themselves the ones that were doing the myth teaching. Now these prophecies that the apostles were teaching that were recorded long ago through numerous prophets, they offer great assurance to believers because of their divine origin. That's the point Peter's making here at the end of this paragraph. Article 3 of the, of the Belgic Confession. It attests to the divine origin of Scripture. It does it very well. I'm going to read it to you. It's only three sentences. It says, We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of man, but that the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, as the Apostle Peter saith, and that afterwards God, from a special care which He has for us and our salvation, commanded His servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit His revealed Word to writing. And He Himself wrote with His own finger the two tablets of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine Scriptures. Our own confession, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 1, testifies to the authority of Scripture because of its divine origin. The Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul testifies to the trustworthiness of Scripture and its use because of its divine origin. He writes there, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God he writes. All Scripture, he writes. It's time for me to wrap things up. Beloved, go ahead and believe the truth of Scripture and what it prophesies regarding Christ because of the eyewitness testimony that Peter and the apostles gave. Believe because of that. It's given in Scripture for that very purpose. You are no less of a Christian because you are encouraged by some historical fact that Scripture lays out here for us. Believe Jesus will return as prophesied because of the confirmation and partial fulfillment of recorded prophecy. That is why God has written in His Word these instances of confirmation. To encourage our faith. To encourage our faith in in all that is written. And believe Jesus will soon return because the same Spirit of God who carried along those men, who spoke the oracles of God recorded in Scripture, is the same Holy Spirit that has granted you faith to believe on Christ. He is the origin of Scripture. He lends Scripture His authority on the truth of what has been revealed to us. These encouraging words of testimony that Peter grants 
to his readers. They are encouraging because, well, frankly, they're going to need to be encouraged. They're going to need to be able to hold on tightly to the truth. Uh, to know it, first of all, as he says. Because very soon, we'll see in chapter 2 of his letter, these false teachers are rising among them. You know, trickly, very tricky devils they are. They're subtle. Isaiah writes about them. He says, to the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And indeed, when the great and terrible day does dawn, it will go hard on them. They will not be spared. Not so for God's chosen people. Not so the, the people of his beloved chosen one. We have truth of Christ confirmed, an apostolic eyewitness in the prophecy of Scripture, and because of the divine source of Holy Scripture that testifies to these things. God has done this for his people, bringing glory to himself. So, my charge to you, stand against the errors of false teachers. They're all around us. Seek, know, and obey all of God's written word. The scriptures are trustworthy because their source is the God of all truth. Praise God and his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, Holy Father, we thank you for that work that has been accomplished by Christ. And we will look forward with great anticipation to his return. We thank you, Father, for bolstering our faith with the truth and these confirmations that we have even studied here this morning in your word. May we not doubt a word of it, but rest fully assured on the truth of everything in your word, written about Christ, written about you, Almighty God, written about us in Christ. The proper view that we should have of ourselves in Christ Jesus. Grant us this grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.